0: Then you have the disciples coming to Jesus, arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then finally, you have two blind men approaching Jesus as he's walking through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. It seems perhaps that all these are kind of disconnected little events, but when you zoom out and look at the entire passage together, we see something staggeringly beautiful about the life of... And mission of Jesus, whether Jesus is talking with his disciples on the road or confronting foolishness and sin in their lives or healing two blind men, the center, the heartbeat of Jesus's life and mission is the cross. That's the big idea. I hope that you'll take away from our text this morning. The cross is the center of the life and mission of Jesus. Now, if you're with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so grateful that you're here this morning. But if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I really think that in God's providence, you are here on a wonderful day where you can hear from God's Word really what is the heartbeat of Christianity, what sets Christianity apart from every other religion and every other worldview, it's not it's morality, but it's the cross of Jesus Christ. So I, I pray that you'll lean in and really listen to what God's Word says this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, I hope that you'll really lean in and really listen, because we could also say that what is central to the life and mission of the Christian is the same thing. The cross of Jesus is the heartbeat of the Christian's life. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, if you read Paul's letters... Paul knows about a lot of stuff. Paul writes about a lot of stuff. What does Paul mean? I I decided to know nothing but the cross. He's saying that the cross is like the lens through which he views everything else. So the cross is the heartbeat. It's the center of the Christian's life as well. Show me a weak Christian or a weak church, and I'll show you a Christian or a church That has taken its eyes off of the cross. So this morning, let's put our eyes on the cross and see what God and His Word has for us today. With God's help, I wanna show you four truths about the cross from our text that will make up the outline for today's sermon. Uh, First, we'll see that the cross was voluntary, then, the cross is exemplary. Number three, the cross was substitutionary. And number four, the cross is revolutionary. Let's begin with number one, the cross was voluntary. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are, are traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. Now if you you know a little bit of the Old Testament you might remember that the Passover Festival w- was a celebration of how God rescued his people out of bondage out of slavery in Egypt and once a year God's people would gather in Jerusalem for a massive festival to remember the Passover so as Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem I want you to envision not just him and his disciples but hundreds perhaps thousands upon thousands of of pilgrims on various roads and highways traveling to the city of Jerusalem. And as they're traveling, there is a buzz of excitement in the air. You're going to see it next Sunday in Matthew 21 because as Jesus walks into the city, there are people screaming and shouting his name. They're taking off their jackets and palm branches and they're laying them on the ground in front of him. They're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is this this palatable excitement in the air as Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem. Everybody thinks this is the time. Now. Now. The king is entering the royal city, David's city, and he's going to march to his throne, and he's going to overthrow Rome, and we're going to be liberated. But Jesus pulls his disciples aside to teach them what's going to happen when he gets there. Look at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 20. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see... We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And He will be raised on the third day. This is now, in Matthew's Gospel, the third time that Jesus has predicted His death. Jesus' words here make it clear that Jesus' is. Death was not some sort of horrible accident. Jesus' death, he he does not die as an ordinary victim. Jesus is going to die voluntarily. Perhaps you're hearing that and you're thinking, wait a minute, just because Jesus predicted his death, does that really mean that he wanted to die? Is he just telling us what's going to happen? Haven't there been some people that have predicted their deaths in advance before? On the night of April 4th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln had a nightmare. According to sources, Lincoln dreamt that he was in the White House, and he heard weeping in the East Room. He followed the sound, and he found a casket surrounded by a grieving crowd. And when Lincoln asked who was in the casket... Someone replied, it's the president. He was killed by an assassin. Lincoln immediately woke up, told his wife, told a few close friends, and 10 days later, Lincoln was assassinated. But the death of Lincoln and the death of Christ are worlds apart. Lincoln may have dreamt about his assassination, but he didn't dream about how he would die. He didn't dream that he would be shot at Ford's Theater by a Confederate sympathizer named John Wilkes Booth. If he did, then Lincoln wouldn't have gone to the theater that night or his security would have been bolstered for that. But Jesus, as he is marching towards Jerusalem, he tells us how he is going to die and who is going to do it. Yet nothing was going to stop Jesus' voluntary death for the sins of, of his people. And Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9 verse 51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, from that part on in Luke's gospel, Jesus is focused on the cross. Or Jesus says this in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The cross was certainly a horrible reality, and yet it was voluntary. Jesus chose to endure the cross. If you're in this room this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to let the voluntary message of the cross sink in this morning because what this means for you is that you are not too far gone. Whatever hardships you're facing in, the wor- in your world today, whatever difficulties, whatever sufferings, you might feel like that I cannot endure these things and yet God sent his son to die on a cross on purpose for you and if he did that bearing the names of his people on the cross, then you are not too far gone for him to redeem you. He's calling you to himself today if you'll simply turn from your sins and trust in him. The cross is the center of the life and mission of Jesus because the cross was voluntary. Number two, I want you to notice how the cross is exemplary. The cross is exemplary. Now, before we look at this next section in Matthew's gospel, you need to pay attention to something for just a moment. Heaven and hell hang in the balance on what we're about to look at in these verses. Here's what I mean. You will condemn yourself to hell, friend, if you follow Jesus' example in his suffering before you receive his suffering as a gift. Martin Luther put it this way, the chief article and foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example, you accept and recognize him as a gift. So before you do something for God, you must receive something from God. Don't listen, okay, now we need to start being like Jesus before you've received Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. If you're a Christian, this is for you. You're not a Christian, just you have my permission to zone out for a couple of moments and then come right back in. Because before you receive him as a gift, you cannot follow him as an example. So Christians, let's look at verse 20. Beginning in verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, "What do you want?" And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, remember, I'm sorry, he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now I want you to remember the context of this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. He just told them when he goes to the Jerusalem, he's going to be flogged, he's going to be crucified. He's going to be arrested and tried and falsely accused. He just told them all of that, and in the context of that, these two disciples, James and John Zebedee, with their mom to sweeten the deal, come to Jesus and say, by the way, can we have some really nice seats in heaven? It's kind of like me saying to Holly how hungry I am as she's delivering our baby. The context just doesn't make sense. But before we're too hard on the Zebedees, I want you to notice the faith in their question. This is not the question of an unbeliever. This is the question, this is the request of someone with great faith in Jesus. You say, what do you mean? Well, they believe that Jesus is a king. They believe that Jesus really has a kingdom. They believe that Jesus has the authority to grant positions of power and authority in his kingdom. They're probably thinking that he's about ready to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, and they're wanting to get first in line for the good seats around the throne. They really believe that Jesus loves them and wants to hear their requests. And they really believe that they can talk to Jesus about anything, no matter how selfish or silly to us, those requests might seem. The problem with James and John Zebedee is that they have forgotten that following Jesus means following him in suffering. So when Jesus asks them, are you ready to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? He's asking them, are you ready to endure the suffering that I'm going to endure? And what do James and John say? We're ready. Fire away maybe even picture a smile on their face as they say it. The reality is, as they enter into Jerusalem, and really just a few days from this very account, they're going to be in the garden as Judas and the Roman soldiers come in to arrest Jesus. And what are James and John going to do? They're going to run away. They're going to run away. They glibly can say, we're ready to drink the cup of suffering, and yet they're really not ready, are they? R- rather than worrying about where they sit in heaven, something that Jesus says is the Father's business, James and John need to prepare themselves for what awaits them here. And yet, despite Jesus correcting them on this, the disciples still don't really get it. Look at verse 24 with me. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, we can't say for sure, but my guess is that the the disciples aren't angry because James and John asked this. They're angry because they didn't get to ask first. (laughs) They still don't get the point. But again, notice the way that Jesus responds to the disciples. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't shout at them. He doesn't get angry at them. He doesn't grow impatient with them. All the ways that we tend to respond when somebody just does not seem to get it, it's not how Jesus responds. Look at his tenderness. Look at his grace in verse 25. Jesus called them to him. Everybody, come here. Everybody, listen up. Come here. And listen to what he says You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be first among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what Jesus is saying not only to the the 12 disciples here, but to all of his disciples here, all his followers. If you want to be lifted up, you need to go low. If you want to be great, you need to serve. So let me ask you, followers of Jesus, Christians in this room, how are you doing here? Are you willing to serve your church, even in the most menial ways? Are there parts of service in the life of the church that you say, that's that's really beneath me? Are there needs that you could meet, but you refuse to? to meet? Do you gather with God's people as a consumer ready to receive something or as someone ready to contribute, to serve? Are you willing to give your life to serve God's people and to meet their needs? Let me just challenge those of you in here that are followers of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian but you will not serve your brothers and sisters and your local church, then I don't really know what you mean when you call yourself a Christian. I'm just to be honest with you. A, a Christian is a follower of Jesus. Jesus humbled himself and served. Jesus tells his disciples and us, go and do likewise as I serve you. You serve each other and others. And if you say, yeah, I wanna follow Jesus, but not in that part, well, this is Jesus' entire ministry was well, to serve in some ways that we can follow and in other ways that we'll see in a moment that we cannot. Christian, let me ask you again. Are, are you willing to follow Jesus' example even when it means carrying a cross? So Jesus, when He talks about this cup of suffering, He's inviting His disciples to see something about what it means to be a Christian, What it means to be a Christian is to carry a cross. What it means to be a Christian is to, in this life, suffer in our pursuit of Jesus that we might receive our best life, not here, but there. So, to the singles in this room, are you trusting your desires to Jesus? Do you believe that He is good even if there are desires in your life that are unmet? You're willing to trust that he's good. To the married in this room, are you willing to be faithful to your spouse and put their needs above your own needs? Are you willing to die to yourself so that you might serve your spouse or your children? To the kids in this room, kids, if you listen up for a second, are you willing to honor mommy and daddy even when it's really hard, even when they tell you to do something you don't want to do? Those of you that are suffering in this room, are you willing to trust that God is good even when life hurts? That's what it means to drink the cup of suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 puts it this way, for this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The cross is the center of the life and mission of Jesus and it's an exemplary cross. No, we can't follow Jesus' example on the cross in everything. Well, we are called to follow Him and follow His example as we suffer so that others might be served. We're willing to do that, Christian. Third truth about the cross that we need to understand is that the cross was substitutionary. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, now it's time to tune back in. This is the part... This is the, where we start in our relationship with Jesus. We do not start by looking to Jesus as an example to follow, but by looking to Jesus as a gift to be received. Jesus died as a substitute. As Jesus is rebuking the disciples in their shallow understanding of the cross and what they're called to do, look at what he says in verse 28 in what may be the most important verse in Matthew's entire gospel. Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want us to zoom in for just a moment on that one verse so that we can take the entirety in of what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Three key truths. If you really want to understand Matthew 20, 28, if you really want to understand the gospel, if you really want to understand Christianity, here's three key truths you need to understand. Truth number one, because God is love, he must hate sin. Because God is love, he must hate sin sin. Maybe that sentence sounds strange to you. I mean, love and hate are opposites, right? I mean, if God is love, why does He have to hate anything? Well, if you love something, you're going to hate whatever threatens the thing that you love. So, for example, if you love African Americans, you'll hate slavery. If you love Jews, you'll hate the Holocaust. If you love children, you'll hate child abuse. If you love the climate, you'll hate global warming and plastic straws. If you love dogs, you'll hate dog fighting and puppy mills. If you love life, you'll hate suicide, murder, and abortion. Dude, we understand. If you love something, really love it, then you'll hate whatever threatens the thing that you love. Because God loves His glory and the creation that reflects His glory. He hates the sin that brings devastation to this world, okay? It's truth number one. Because God is love, He must hate sin. Truth number two, because God hates sin, He must punish sin. Now, maybe that one's hard for us too. I mean, why does He have to punish it? Some people will say, well, why can't God just not punish it? Imagine a judge who says... I hate child abuse. It's horrible. It's deeply offensive to me. And yet every time a child abuser is on trial, even though there is uh, or indisputable evidence that this person is guilty, even though there's a guilty confession, what if that judge who says, I hate child abuse, lets the abuser go free? Would you say that he really hates it? If you have the power to stop something that you say you hate, wouldn't you stop it? Of course you would. We would expect that from any judge. So too with God. If he's a good God and a good judge, he cannot merely claim to hate sin. He must also punish sin. Now, that is good news when you're thinking about something like slavery or the holocaust or child abuse most of us would say we're grateful that god is a just judge and he will punish the evils that have been inflicted in our world it's also good news when you think about the people that sin against you if somebody you know messes up your lawn you can have confidence that god is a just judge and you don't have to take vengeance yourself like, It's encouraging. But here's where it gets hard, when you realize that you too are a sinner. You too and me too have fallen short of the glory of God. And all of a sudden, when you look at evil out there and you say, well, God has to punish that, that's good. And then you start looking at the evil in here and you realize God has to punish that too. All of a sudden, what was initially comforting is not so comforting anymore. God, if he's a just judge, cannot grade on a curve either, can he? He must punish all sin. Because God is a good judge and because he hates sin, he must punish sin. That means that every single sin you and I have ever committed, any person has ever committed, is accumulating a debt that must be paid. That's when we get to the third truth, to help us understand verse 28. Because God loves his people, he sent his son to die in our place. That's the message of Matthew 20, verse 28. Let me help you maybe get our minds around it a little bit. Imagine that you're appearing before a judge for speeding and reckless driving in a school zone for blind children. There's indisputable video evidence that uh, places you at the scene. You've already confessed your guilt. There's multiple witnesses. There is no question that you are guilty. And because your your speeding seriously endangered these blind children, the sentence is either a $100,000 fine or a year in jail. Now... Anyone have an extra $100,000 lying around? If so, see me after the service. Just kidding. Most of us probably don't. We have a building fund we got to talk about, but that's another issue. Most of us probably don't have an extra $100,000 lying around. So if you have that fine, pay it or go in prison for a year. What's happening to most of us? Prison. Unless somebody walks into the courtroom and pays your fine. Look again at Matthew 20:28. 20, the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you hear that word ransom, what do, you, what do you think of? You probably think about a ransom payment paid to set someone free who's been kidnapped, right? Well, the word ransom in Jesus' day was used similarly. It was used uh, to describe the price that was paid to set someone free from slavery. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm the one that is walking into the courtroom and paying your fine. This is exactly what was prophesied of him in Isaiah 53. Verses 4 to 6, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What is this teaching? That on the cross, Jesus is paying our fine. He is enduring the punishment that we deserve to pay. Now, there are, of course, several differences between Je- what Jesus did on the cross, and our courtroom illustration. Our sin is far worse. In our illustration, you endangered some children, but you didn't hurt anybody. But in reality, by your sin, you have committed cosmic treason against the most precious being in the universe. And the stakes are far higher. In our courtroom illustration, what was at risk was a year in jail. But what awaits you if you will not repent and believe in Christ is eternity separated from him in a place called hell. And the price that was paid is far greater. And in our illustration, someone pays $100,000 so that you can go free. But Jesus gave his life on the cross. So how do we respond to this? Just like in the courtroom, if someone offers to pay your fine, you have to receive that payment. You must receive Jesus' payment as a gift. The Bible says we do that by repenting and believing, by turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus. So let me invite you this, in this room this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, would you today turn from your sins and trust in Jesus? You can do that today. You can do that right in your seat. If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus and you have received Jesus' death as a gift, his cross as a gift, here's what you and I must never, ever do. Never, ever, ever try to pay Jesus back. If someone paid $100,000 to let you out of jail, you might spend the rest of your life trying to pay back that debt. But trying to pay back the debt of the cross cheapens the cross. It's a debt you could never repay. So what do we do with our lives then? We we, we follow Jesus, just like the song says, my chains fell off and I rose, went forth, and followed him. Why? Out of gratitude, not to earn anything, not to pay him back, not because we're in his debt, but because we love him. We want to follow Him. He paid the price to set us free. Why wouldn't we follow Him? That's how we follow Jesus. That's why we follow Jesus, not to earn anything, but to show our affection and praise for Him because He's worthy. The cross is the center of the life and mission of Jesus because the cross was substitutionary. And finally, the cross is revolutionary. As Jesus is walking and talking with his disciples, continuing towards Jerusalem, he's he's marching towards the cross. They encounter two blind men sitting by the roadside. We'll pick up in verse 29. And as they went out of, of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them, be silent but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, in order to grasp exactly what's going on, it helps to understand how blind people were often treated in Jesus' day. If you were a man and you were blind, you would often be sold into slavery. If you were a woman and you were blinded, you would often be sold into prostitution. Blind babies were often abandoned and left to be eaten by wild animals. There was even an old Middle Eastern proverb that expressed the way that people in Jesus' day felt about blind people, and it goes like this. When you see a blind man, kick him. Why should you be kinder to him than God has been? That, That sort of mistreatment is evident in the crowd, isn't it? They're crying out, mercy, Jesus, mercy, help us, and they're saying, be quiet. Don't make so much noise. Why are you bothering him? Leave him alone. He doesn't have time for you. I wonder if there's anyone in this room that can relate with the two blind men in this story. You feel broken, cast off, unwanted, cursed, unwelcome. The sad reality is that the world often casts out people in that condition. And even sadder reality is that sometimes God's people do the same thing. We don't know for sure, but perhaps the disciples were some of the people that were telling these blind men to be quiet. But here's what we do know. That's not the way that Jesus treats us in our need. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 32. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. One thing that's significant about this healing of these blind men is that if you read through the Bible, you'll find all sorts of miracles done by all sorts of people, but only Jesus heals the blind. Only Jesus heals the blind. Why? Why? Because there, there's something I think there's there's something uh, an example for us in our condition. Because apart from Christ, we too are blinded by our sin. We're enslaved to our sin, and Jesus opens up our eyes so that we might see. Now, if just if you could imagine that you you had the ability to heal the blind, and just imagine the temptation that might happen if you're in Jesus' shoes right here at this point in the story. On the one hand, we might think, I'm on my way to die on a cross to save my people. Do you think I have time to mess with a couple of blind men? Don't you realize I got bigger things to do? I don't have time to stop for these guys. That might be one temptation. The other temptation might be the opposite, to see, wow, these blind men, nobody else can heal them, but I can. Maybe I should just not worry about the cross. There's a lot of good I can do here in Jericho. But Jesus does neither of those things. Jesus takes time to minister to the physical, temporal needs of image bearers of God, and he keeps marching to the cross to take care of our spiritual need by dying there when we truly understand the revolutionary message of the cross we are freed to love like that too over the past 8 years at PBC and much further back than that as well we've cared for all sorts of physical needs we've helped build an orphanage in cameroon we've given to earthquake victims in haiti and afghan refugees in our own area we provided gifts and meals for victims of house fires, benevolence gifts to the needy. We supported financially ministries like Peninsula Rescue Mission and CareNet and Thrive and Minchville House and Operation Christmas Shout and more. But in all of that caring for physical needs as a church, we have not forgotten that the spiritual needs of this world are great when there's a world lost and dying without Jesus. Our members are still telling other people the gospel. You're going to hear one of those stories in our baptism in just a moment. We're investing time and energy for something like Vacation Bible School. You see the posters around you. Why do we do that? Is it because, you know what? I would love this week is 75 children just running around the church building because I have nothing else better to do. (laughs) Of course not. Why do you do it? because you believe that little children are made in the image of God, and they need to know the truth about Jesus, and we know the truth about Jesus, and we can tell them the truth about Jesus. Why do we do those things? Why do we remember physical needs and spiritual needs? Because the cross is revolutionary. It changes us. We, We believe that the cross was voluntary, that Jesus freely and gladly gave himself so that we might be saved. So what do we do? We freely and gladly give ourselves to others. We believe that the cross was exemplary, that Jesus suffered so that we could follow in his footsteps. So what do we do? We, we help suffering people even when it hurts us. We tell the good news even when it's hard. We believe the cross was substitutionary, that Jesus died in our place to ransom us. So when we love others well, we don't get proud because any good in us comes from Jesus who first loved us. And when we love others poorly, we're not crushed because all the bad in us was paid for on the cross. We believe that the cross was revolutionary, that Jesus' death changes everything. So our goal is to know the cross better, to study it, to meditate on it, to sing about it, to rejoice in it until the day that we see Jesus face to face. And guess what, Christian? On that day, you're still gonna sing about the cross. And on that day, perhaps, or maybe some days later, or maybe thousands of years later, you one day might bump into James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They might not be sitting on Jesus' right hand and left hand, but they will be able to tell us about how they did indeed eventually drink the cup of suffering that Jesus predicted. James could tell you about how he was the first of the disciples to die a martyr's death when he was beheaded by King Herod in Acts chapter 12. And his brother John might say, yeah, James, but I was the last one to be killed as a martyr. Church history tells us that John was boiled in hot oil and then died as an exile on the island of Patmos, suffering the wounds from his affliction as a follower of Jesus. What transformed these men from at one point in the story bringing their mommy to Jesus so they can get special permission to sit on the right hand and left hand in heaven to men that are willing to die for the cross. What changed? They saw Jesus die, and they saw him rise from the dead. May that message, may that cross so to revolutionize us so that we might live and love like they lived and loved, like Jesus has commanded us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your beloved son. We thank you, Jesus, for loving us so much that you, for the joy that was set before you, endured the cross, despising its shame, And we thank you that there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May any in this room that don't know Jesus personally, may they bow the knee to him now. May they turn from their sins and trust in this Jesus now. And for those of us who are your people, may we faithfully follow you Drink the cup of suffering as you give it to us. Follow in your footsteps and suffer and serve. Not in anger, not in frustration, not in impatience, but out of joy because we love you. Do all these things and more in us and through us and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand as we sing together?
1: Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the
0: we come to celebrate a baptism it's appropriate for us to remind ourselves what baptism is it does not wash away sin it does not cause a person to be born again does not save anybody Uh, that work is what was done on the cross as we just heard about we respond to that what Jesus did on the cross when we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus, and when that happens, we are born again. We are saved. We are are made new. But a follower of Jesus wants to obey Jesus, and when the heart has been made new, we want to make it public. And so baptism is is really like the the public announcement that I am a follower of Jesus. It's, It's much like a wedding ring. This does not make me married, but it announces to others that I am married. And baptism is your announcement to other people that I am a follower of Jesus. And even though this is not the moment that a person is saved, it is a moment they're making it public. And because of that, it's something that's worth rejoicing over. Uh, This is the time where I, I often tell you guys to let your inner Pentecostal out and just cheer and rejoice because this is something we celebrate, that someone has gone from death to life. The work was done on the cross, but it was responded to by the sinner in real time. And we praise the Lord for how God has done that through the life of Cody Kennington. I'm going to ask Cody to come on down, and Sam Garcia is going to come and read Cody's testimony.
2: I grew up knowing things about the Bible, but throughout my life I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. I couldn't find satisfaction in anything, and I found myself at the end of my rope. Hobson and Sam had recently visited my grandma, Miss Marilyn Keener, and they offered to talk if I ever wanted. And a few days later, I hit rock bottom and reached out to them. I was having heart issues, and I knew I needed faith in something. I had lost faith in everything. When I met with them, I mentioned that I was praying to God a lot. But Hobson asked me who the God was that I was praying to. I couldn't answer that question. I was praying to whatever God allowed me to be alive. But my question, but my answer felt incomplete. So when Hobson and Sam offered to meet with me to study Christianity Explained, I said, yes, it felt wrong to say no. By the second week together, I was starting to believe. I had read the Bible before, but it was so much easier to understand this time. For the first time, the message about Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead didn't seem unbelievable. It was like a mythical, It was not like a mythical fairy tale anymore. I couldn't not believe in it. And by the fifth week, I was ready to give my life to Jesus. Ever since then, everything unchristian that I used to do seemed wrong. I began to feel much more conviction when I sinned. I watched the the faith of my friends begin to dwindle while my faith was growing stronger. This has been a struggle, but I want to be baptized to pronounce my faith in Jesus. Amen. Amen.
0: Cody, we've heard your story. We see the big smile on your face. Have you turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross? I have. And do you believe that he rose from the dead so that you can have life and hope in him? And I do. Are you willing and ready to follow Jesus alongside your family here in this church? I'm ready. Then I'm gonna baptize you, my brother. Bend your knees. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Him by baptism into death, and raised to walk in newness of life.
1: Sing, doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings
0: Receive the benediction from Hebrews 13, verses 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen." Amen. Go in peace.